Hey there, thanks for tuning in to St. John's Asheville Sermon Podcast. We're a church in Sydney's inner west, following Jesus and helping people find grace, learn hope, and be light. If you'd like to visit us or find out more, go to cciw.church. ...hand over the sea, so that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and chariot drivers. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and at dawn the sea returned to its normal depth. As the Egyptians fled before it, the Lord tossed the Egyptians into the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the chariot drivers, the entire army of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the Israelites walked on dry ground through the sea. The waters formed a wall for them on their right and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great word work that the Lord did against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Then the Lord and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. Horse and rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my might, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he cast into the sea. His picked officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shattered the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrew your adversaries. You sent out your fury. It consumed them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in splendor, doing wonders? You stretch out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. In your steadfast love, you led the people whom you redeemed. You guided them by your strength to your holy abode. And the next reading is from Ephesians, and we're reading all of chapter 2. You were dead through the trespasses and sins in which you once lived, following the course of this world, following the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work among those that are disobedient. All of us once lived among them in the passions of our flesh, following the desires of the flesh and senses, and we were by nature children of wrath, like everyone else. But God, who is rich in mercy, out of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead through our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not the result of works so that no one may boast. For we are what he has made us, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand to be our way of life. 
So then, remember that at one time you Gentiles by birth called the uncircumcision by those who are called the circumcision, a physical circumcision made in the flesh by human hands. Remember that you were at that time without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, having brought near by the blood of Christ, for he is our peace. In his flesh, he has made both groups into one and has broken down the dividing wall, that is the hostility between us. He has abolished the law with its commandments and ordinances that he may create in himself one new humanity in place of the two, making peace and might reconcile both groups to God in one body through the cross, thus putting to death that hostility through it. So he came and proclaimed peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, both of us have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are citizens with the saints and also members of the household of God, built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole structure is joined together and grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you are also built together spiritually into a dwelling place for God. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, in my uh, devotions at the moment, I'm using a book called Be Thou My Vision. Uh, it's a really helpful book. Uh, it gives you a sort of a little private service to do for yourself um, for each day of the month. And so you get a repeat, not every seven days, but every 31 days. And um, anyway, I'm just finding it really helpful. And one of the things that they have is a prayer for illumination before your Bible reading. And there are all these, there are lots of really great prayers, often old, old prayers, often great prayers. And so I'm going to... Um, I think I'm going to use a prayer of illumination before the sermon every time I preach. So, let us pray. Almighty God and most merciful Father, we humbly submit ourselves and fall down before your majesty, asking you from the bottom of our hearts that this seed of your word, now sown among us, may take such deep root that neither the burning heat of persecution cause it to wither, nor the thorny cares of this life choke it. But that as seed sown in good ground, it may bring forth 30, 60 or 100 fold, as your heavenly wisdom has appointed. Amen. So uh, last week we began our exploration of the uh, nature and mission of the church, uh, with the Apostle Paul's letter to the Ephesians as our guide. And um, one of the ways I like to sum up the kind of place of the church, which uh, Richard unpacked uh, last week, is to say that the church is sort of central to what God is doing in his world. Sort of central. And I say sort of central because I think that captures something of the ambivalence that we can at times feel about the church. Uh, on, on the one hand, we know that the church is categorically not the centre of the work and grace of God in this world. It, it, it can't be. To say that would be to equate the church with the kingdom of God. And that would be a catastrophic mistake. No, Jesus is the heart and soul and centre and power of the mission of God. He is the kingdom of God in his own person by resurrection from the dead. He's the centre. 
And at the same time, we learned last week, the church is not just like the free set of steak knives that you get with the deal. A kind of optional extra in the Christian life and add-on to make use of if you feel like it. No, no. Uh, Precisely because Jesus Christ is the centre and the church is in Jesus Christ, it means that the church is sort of central. Central in a, in a one-step-removed kind of way. But definitely not an optional add-on to your Christian experience. I have a uh, Facebook friend, um, and uh, one post that I saw from my Facebook friend was uh, responding to a question that she was asked, why haven't you left the church yet? Um, and, and the thing that surprised me most was that the question was taken seriously. It's, it's not a serious question. It can't be a serious question. Uh, I mean, I understand that it's an emotional question, but it's not a serious question, at least not if we heard Ephesians chapter 1. Um, as as uh, theologian Don Carson wrote recently, and this is, this is just, you know, I said this this morning and there were audible gasps. Okay, so, you know, get ready. Here it is. Quote, There is a sense in which it, there is a sense in which it is true to say that you can't have God as your father without having the church as your mother. See, thank you. Um, That's a very ancient statement, actually. It goes way back to the third century. Um, And there's all sorts of potential problems with it. You can't have God as your father without having the church as your mother. Don Carson says there's a sense in which that's true. Why? Because if you're going to have Christ as your head, then kind of by definition, you have to be part of his body. That's what we saw last week. Uh, That's the gift that Paul gives us. It's a precious gift right at the end of the first chapter of Ephesians. This, This brilliant category for understanding the church as the body of Jesus Christ, the body of him who is the head. Uh, and, and the apostle goes on and says that, um, that the church is the fullness of this one through whom all things were created and for whom all things were created and everything has been redeemed and, and therefore he is the, uh, the one that fills all in all. He's the one who fills everything in every way, which makes sense then of the otherwise incomprehensible idea that God the Father, and I think this is one of the most extraordinary verses about the church in the whole Bible. God the Father puts all things under the feet of Jesus Christ, makes him head over all things in order to sum up all things in him. Do you remember this? Why does he do it? For whose sake does he do it? He puts all things under Jesus' feet for the church. Can you, would you ever have written that sentence? Aren't you glad that you didn't... I'm glad you didn't write the Bible, actually. You would never write that. God put all things under the feet of Christ for the church. Well, this week we move on to the next chapter of Ephesians and the next crucial issue. If the nature of the church is that it is central in a sort of way, because it is Christ who's really central and we're in Christ, then the character of the church 
is that it moves to the rhythms of grace. The character of the church is that it moves to the rhythms of grace. And nowhere in all the New Testament displays the dazzling pattern of grace, quite like Ephesians chapter 2. And Paul teaches us three crucial things here. First, that salvation is by grace, which therefore immediately, inevitably, necessarily leads to point two, that the church is therefore by grace. And then finally, uh, why those two things are linked in beautiful and powerful harmony. Salvation by grace leads to church by grace and how that works. So first then, salvation by grace. Uh, I don't know if you've ever been in a really uh, very, very, very dark place. Uh, I don't mean um, psychologically. I don't even mean being out at night in Sydney where the lights of the city themselves uh, make an ambient difference. I mean really dark place. I've been in a cave, uh, hundreds of metres underground, uh, there, no electricity, uh, several years ago, and it's so pitch black, you, you, this is the real thing, you really, really can't see your hand in front of your face. You're just sort of doing this and nothing's happening. You can't see a thing. And then our guide turned on his light and it was the brightest and most welcome light I'd ever seen, and especially, of course, because of the contrast between the dark and the light. And I think Ephesians 2 is a bit like that. Paul starts in the darkest of darkness only to show the utter brilliance of the grace of God in Christ. But before we get to Christ, there's sin, there's darkness. And see how Paul describes it in verses 1 to 3. You were dead through the trespasses and sins in which you once lived, following the course of this world, following the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work amongst those who are disobedient. All of us lived among them in the passions of our flesh, following the desires of flesh and senses. And we were by nature children of wrath like everyone else. Now, notice uh, Paul says three things about uh, uh, sin. Uh, sin is probably a word that's really sort of gaining, sort of getting to the end of its uh, use-by date. Uh, it's, a, it's a hard word for us to use. We can't, it's hard to use out there. It's hard even to apply to ourselves. We're much better with the word mess, aren't we? What is the, the mess that you're in, the mess that you do, the messes that you perpetrate and, and just the, the, the brokenness that we have in ourselves and that we make in other people, what is it? What's the problem? Well, this is the problem. On the one hand, it's about the moral realm, which we all know, actually. Uh, sin is to do with what is right and what is wrong, what is good and what is bad, and deep in our souls we know that justice matters. Justice really, really matters. And so what is bad and wrong must be put to rights. And we hate it when it's not. We hate it when it's not. And that's why Paul's conclusion is that by nature we're all children of God's wrath because justice needs to be done for those who are damaged and hurt by wrongdoing. They must be vindicated. That's what wrath is about, justice. So there's a the moral realm. But it's really interesting. If you, left, if you leave your understanding of sin at that, which of course is what most people do and is what most people think Christianity does, that turns out to be far too shallow, and actually the Apostle Paul doesn't do that. Because on the other hand, uh, the mess that we're in is what you might call cardiac. Um, it's about the realm of your heart. And what the Apostle says is that sin, when it finds its location in our hearts, enslaves us. You see that... Uh, that idea of slavery in the word uh, following. 
Uh, it's actually a much stronger word. Um, it's, it's something like uh, being led around by the nose. Have you ever, you ever seen, you know, actually not just animals, some people have nose rings. You could lead them around by the nose. And just sort of drag them about. And, and that's, that's the image here. Um, it, sin is much more like an addiction of desire than a mere selection of one action over another. And its power, the apostle says, comes from the passions of our flesh. Uh, that word for passions is, as we've seen here in the evening service uh, many, many times, that uh, Greek word for over-desires, the, the misplaced, disordered loves that lodge in our hearts where we settle our being and meaning and substance into some created thing, your spouse or your work or your wealth or whatever it might be, rather than in the creator. And that enslaves us. Another way the Bible talks about this reality is as idols. It demands that we act in ways that end up being repeatedly selfish and self-centered rather than God and other person-centered. But actually the Bible's analysis of the darkness, of the mess of sin is even deeper than that. Not only is sin moral and cardiac, it's also what you might call ontological. It touches us at the very depths of our being, or as Paul puts it, we're dead in our trespasses and sin. Sin kills Sin kills, makes us spiritually, utterly incapable and inert, just like dead bodies are utterly incapable and inert. Now, what's really interesting when you read a text like Ephesians 2, 1 to 3, is that you've got to realise that what it's doing is that it's drawing a map for you of how reality is. And the crucial thing that you've got to do is figure out how you can take that map and then look at your lived experience, your, your own life and your, the lives of others and, and the people that you care for and the, the neighbours that you have around your home and the colleagues that you have at work, and you've got to be able to bring the two together so that the Bible's not just left hanging out there as a bunch of ideas that float around and you argue about and it's just ideas and then there's life. You've got to map what the Bible says onto people so that it fits in a way that the scriptures make sense. Read this again. This, this, is, this is saying this is how your life has been. This is saying how the life of your neighbours and colleagues and family members even is. And you've got to, you've got to let the map do its work on your categories, on your perception, on your posture, your stance so that you integrate your experience in the Bible, and especially on this topic of sin, on the mess. That's the darkness, but precisely because it's so dark, the grace of God in Jesus Christ is so beautifully bright. And you see that uh, when the apostle goes on to say that we're saved by grace. And what he means by that is this. Grace means that there is precisely nothing in us that motivates or moves God to come to us in mercy and forgiveness and kindness. Grace means that there's nothing about us. This is why I think uh, the Bible uses the word grace more than the word love. It's true that God loves us, but the thing is that it's possible for you to love what is lovely. Um, I won't 
go on and on about my wife at this point particularly, but I could. You love what is lovely. That's not grace. Grace is loving what is unlovely. When there's nothing about the object and recipient of your grace to attract your love. There is no prior excellence or goodness, no quality or compatibility, no performance or competence that we bring to the table in being connected to God. It's all utterly and entirely from his side. That's what grace is. And so I I want to point something out here. This is really, really important to get. Um, You see here that there is a curious but critical relationship between sin and grace. So, So listen to this. Let this one sort of roll around in your mind and heart for a moment. Grace is only grace to the degree that sin is really sin. Right, do you see that? Grace is only grace to the degree that sin really is sin. If sin were less than what Paul describes in verses 1 to 3, then grace would be less than what Paul describes in verses 4 to 10. Because we, we would have had some contribution, some loveliness some living up to standards, some moral or spiritual capacity that we add to the mix, but but not when we're spiritually dead. Not when we're enslaved objects of wrath being led, led around by the nose by our desires, disordered. We bring nothing. And that makes grace gracious gratuitous and so God who is rich in mercy out of the great love with which he loved us isn't that just a glorious beautiful beautiful phrase out of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead to our trespasses he just did an astonishing thing he undid sin for sinners he cleaned up our mess The light of Christ breaks through and it deals with all three realms that is described in verses 1 to 3 and he just shows how they're undone in reverse order. To to dead people, you see, we're dead in our trespasses. He makes them alive with Christ. Right? He undoes sin. He makes them alive with Christ, now spiritually receptive and tender and warm, not cold and dead and inert. To enslaved people spiritually enslaved people he gives the freedom of being seated at the right uh, seated with Christ where our hearts are so full of him that all other desires are rightly ordered this idea of being seated uh, with Christ is a powerful image of victory and conquest when, when a conquering general would return from the battlefield he'd be ushered up to the to the seat of the emperor and to sit down at the right hand to show how honored and powerful he was you see, this is where we're placed now. No longer slaves with all the dishonour that goes with that. No, but free, exalted, glorious. And, and to moral failures, children of wrath, the apostle says that what God does is he fashions us like a master craftsman. He creates us 
or perhaps better, recreates us for a life of good works prepared from all eternity to be our way of life. Um, this, this is a, a very, very lovely thing. It's like um, you, you are, are um, God's workmanship. Um, literally, the idea is that you are, you are like a piece of art that God's created. You're a work of art. You always were. Sin really messed with that up. And now he's redeemed you, grabbed you back and recreated you to be that work of art that you're created to be. We, um, we, we, just, we love putting art around our house. And, uh, one of the members of our house is an artist and it's just awesome. And that's you. You're a work of art. Beautiful. Created by God. Not, not to be a child of wrath, of course, but for a life of just spreading goodness everywhere. We're not saved by our good works, of course not, but we are saved for good works, the apostle says. And that is a glorious salvation. It comes to us by glorious, free, joyous grace. It fills and thrills our hearts to be accepted this freely, this warmly, this unconditionally. And, we, you know, frankly, we could just stop there and just exalt for a couple of days. But we're not going to, because with seamless logic, point two, the apostle goes on to show that salvation by grace absolutely necessitates church by grace. You see, uh, Paul moves to the next issue, which is all about the community into which God forms those he has saved. Uh, the, the context in which Ephesians uh, is written is one of profound racial and personal prejudice and hatred. I, th- I think this is hard for us to get. Um, it, it makes what we see in places like Israel and Palestine at the moment uh, look like, you know, child's play. Uh, the, the, the thought of the, how Jews and Gentiles uh, related to each other uh, was an enmity of massive intensity. Um, it centered around the Jewish legislation, um, also known in Hebrew as the Torah, the old covenant law which God gave to Moses and which had come to be a dividing wall of hostility, is the, the description that Paul puts it, uh, within the culture. Israel was meant to use the good gift of the Torah to be a light to the nations, to, to sort of be a demonstration of the righteousness of God. But instead, and I mean, who who could imagine ever doing this? Taking the gifts that God has given you of, of privilege and opportunity and background and wealth and intelligence, who could imagine using the gifts that you have and instead of using them to be a blessing to other people, to just use them to puff yourself up? I mean, can you imagine that? Well, that's what Israel did. She took the gifts that God gave her and made those gifts her identity. Um, despising the Gentiles, what um, Israelites called filthy goy. That was the term of endearment that the uh, Jewish people had for uh, spiritually unclean Gentiles. And, of course, uh, they despised Israel right back at you. Um, After all, there's nothing as despicable as being despised. It's a spiritual sickness that breaks communities everywhere, isn't it? taking the gifts and attributes you've been given and using them to puff yourself up and to look down on others, whether race or wealth or education 
or social background or whatever to make tribes. To make tribes. An us. And every us needs a them. And the great thing about being an us as against a them is that you can feel good about yourself by looking down on them. And the Apostle makes a profound point into this deeply dysfunctional context where in the one church, the same, imagine, on this side of the room, Jewish Christians. On this side of the room, filthy Goy Christians. Let's mix. And here's how Paul does it. He says, verse 15 to 16, He, Jesus, has abolished the law with its commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new humanity in place of the two, thus making peace, and might reconcile both groups to God in one body through the cross, thus putting to death that hostility through it. Now you've got to, you've got to really focus on this because the words just roll out one after the other, but there is a remarkable and immensely significant logic here. The same act which constitutes our reconciled relationship with God is precisely the act which constitutes our reconciled relationships with each other. How? Well, the apostle says both groups are reconciled to God by the cross and both groups are reconciled to one another by the cross. The cross does the work of making peace, and this is just genius, really, in one body. And, of course, that's really deliberate double entendre. The body of Christ which hangs there and dies, bears our sins, our pride, our selfishness, and makes peace with God. And at the same time, the reference is to the body which is the body of Christ, the church, into which we're catapulted as we trust in Christ And so we are reconciled to each other, put up right close against each other. The body on the cross which makes our salvation also makes the body which is the church. And those two things go unbreakably together. And the crucial thing to see is that this community, this new humanity, what a bold term. Like there's according to Jewish thought, two forms of the old humanity, Jews and Gentiles, and then there's a new humanity, a whole new way of being human. And this new humanity community is pure grace, just like your salvation. It's not a product of whether you like the other person or whether you are like the other person. It's not community by affinity, tribalism. It's not about whether you find them acceptable or interesting or attractive. There's actually no place for evaluation or assessment, frankly, for acceptance or rejection on your part. This is a community that is simply a given for you. And from the other end of the stick, it's got nothing to do with how excellent you are, what value you add or contribution you bring to the community of the body of Christ. Now, this community is a community of grace. 
precisely because the act which constitutes it is an act of grace. And that means there can be no ifs. If you are nice, if you fit in, if you are educated, if you are anti-this, if that. There's no ifs. That's why, um, you know that lovely phrase that Jesus uses at times, the little ones don't... uh, don't cause one of these little ones to stumble. And, and little ones can mean, you know, literally little ones because they're very vulnerable. But, but I think Jesus has in mind something broader, actually, the category of people um, who don't have a great deal to offer, who have been beaten and broken by the world, uh, people with disability, people with profound challenges. And how the church treats the little ones of this world says everything about that church because they may not have much to offer and that's the point. We're not a community of people who have a lot to offer. We're a community of people who have been graced. We've been graced. Lumped together in the body of Christ, which is the church, precisely because we're bound together with God through the body of Christ on the cross. Now, in a moment, we'll come back to the spiritual dynamic that actually makes this work. Uh, you know, this sounds pretty good in theory, doesn't it? Who wouldn't want to be part of a community of grace? Uh, but before we move on, Paul makes sure that we understand the contours of this common life. Uh, verse 19, so then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are citizens with the saints and also members of the household of God built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole structure is joined together and grows into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are built together spiritually into a dwelling place for God. Um, There are three images here, really sort of all mashed up together, really interesting, um, which express both the grace character of the community and also the intensity of the connection that that produces. We're not a club. Right? Being, being part of a club is great. Um, I'm part of a golf club. When we go there, we say hi, and then we say bye, and, and that's it. We're not a club. No, no, we're citizens, Paul says first. Uh, the image here is of belonging to a nation or a homeland. And notice, of course, what makes you a citizen. Ready? What makes you a citizen is grace. You just get born. It's not something you earn or deserve or merit or obtain by being good or acceptable. You're just born. And then you belong. And that's it. And that person over there, guess what? They're born. And they belong. Right alongside you, whether you like it or not and whether they like you or not. That's how grace works. And at the same time, again, notice the the way that the image has an intensity about it. Citizen evokes a shared loyalty, a shoulder-to-shoulder stance in the defence of the nation, promotion of its interests, uh, especially if you're in the armed services. I don't know if you know people that are in the armed services. They take this idea, loyalty, uh, solidarity, sacrifice, uh, extremely seriously. They have a willingness to die for their country and for each other. That's us. We're citizens. Living in that sort of service and sacrifice and loyalty and standing up for one another and defending each other. That's how community of grace works. And the second image makes the same point, but with even greater 
force, uh, not only are we citizens, we're also members of the household of God. That is, we're a family. So again, do the thought experiment. Um, what makes you a member of family? What makes you a member of family is grace. It's not something you earn or deserve or merit or obtain by being good or acceptable. You get born. And therefore you belong. And that's it. And this person beside you, they got born too, for better or worse, your sibling. And they belong right alongside you, whether you like it or not, and whether they like you. That's how grace works. And of course, there's an image of really deep relational intensity. Being a member of a family uh, is about transparency in what you might call whole-of-life hospitality. Family members know one another. They have few secrets from one another because they live cheek by jowl. They know each other at their best and at their worst. They share everything. They share space. Uh, occasionally they share clothes, money, time, resources. You're in each other's lives deeply and powerfully. That's us! We're not just a voluntary association. We're not a club. We're a family. And the third image just drills down um, even further. Uh, not only are we citizens with one another, serving our king together in an intense shared loyalty to one another, not only are we members of the household together, living with our heavenly father in an intense transparency and hospitality for one another. Ready? Ready? Here's the third image. You're also bricks, stones, forged in the same oven, if you like, laid next to one another along the lines, the right angles defined by Jesus Christ, the cornerstone. And what we're to see here is a, what you might call a corporate spirituality. Paul says, it's so bold, he says that it's together that we constitute a holy temple in the Lord. That, that, that it's, by, it's, to, it's in our togetherness that we are a dwelling place. for You want to find God? You want to go to God's home? You want to knock on God's door? It's the church. There's a sense in which it is true to say that God is present specially and particularly with us. More than, different than, when each of us is just alone. Built together. Dwelling place for God. Citizens, family, temple. That is how Paul depicts the church brought together by grace with a profound connection of shared loyalty, open transparency and hospitality, and corporate spirituality. And again, it's worth just doing the, doing the you know, reflection moment. If you run that pattern, that description, over your own connection to the body of Christ, how snugly does it fit? To what degree does this match your experience? To what degree does it match your engagement, actually? It's going to be far more than just a Sunday. I mean, it's going to be Sunday as we gather. But we'll, we'll gather as what you might call the church scattered in the week at all sorts of different ways in support and care and love. And um, Two members of our morning service here have gotten very, very serious cancer at the moment. And uh, the rallying of the community around them just the, the constant prayer and love that is being shown to them. It's like, okay, yep, this is how it's meant to be. This is what you do when one of your own is like this. 
Um, now, look, I know that there are all sorts of reasons why you may not find this grace character of the church uh, at work, all sorts of history, all sorts of people and experiences and things that you've heard and so on and so on. And we'll look at these realities. I'm going to shirk that. For the moment, notice that what the Apostle says in, four, in chapter 4, because he knows that it doesn't always feel like this either, right? He says, make every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Make every, make every effort is a little bit more than um, get offended and leave, right? That, that's not making every effort. Making every effort is not like saying, I'll write an email and see how it goes, and then if that doesn't work, then I'm out of here. That's not making every effort. Making every effort means that there's no effort that you don't make. I mean, there it is, genius. Uh, and, of course, the apostle is aware of this uh, challenge because you only have to make every effort. You only have to tell them to make every effort when it's really difficult and really awkward. This is us. We're saved by grace into, therefore, a community of grace. And that's how it has to be. The fact that God has saved us by grace both necessitates and empowers our living in that grace as a community. And let me just push this a little bit further. Um, what it is to be a community of grace rather than a community of affinity. What it is to be a community of grace rather than being a club is that you find yourself deeply bound to people that you experience as extremely difficult and even repelling. Why would you bother to do that? Why would you stick around? Why wouldn't you just find some nicer people? Because how could any one of us possibly treat others in a way contrary to the way in which God has treated us? Into the utter darkness of our lives, morally dark, cardiacly broken, spiritually dead, God shone the light of his gospel and his grace for free. He required precisely nothing from us in order to get him to do it. We had to satisfy precisely no criteria to be acceptable to him. We couldn't. That's the whole point. And so that's how we must treat one another as well. No ifs, no performance criteria, no requirements. Um, it's... Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his uh, little book, Life Together, in chapter one, who makes his point with, I think, um, extraordinary force and pushes it all the way. And so I'm going to read a, a quote. You may well have heard this before. Uh, you, you should read this chapter each year. It's one of those things. Sometimes you should read it each month. Uh, you just need it. Listen to what he says. He says, even when sin and misunderstanding burden the communal life. That's a really nice way of saying even when people are really crappy to you, right? Even when that's the case. Is not the sinning sister or brother still a sister or brother? 
with whom I too stand under the word of Christ. And then he goes on. It's just, it's, you just see if you can cope with this. Uh, will not his or her sin be a constant occasion for me to give thanks? So there's a strategy that I bet you haven't tried before. Someone really does something that hurts you. And you think, I get it. What I'm supposed to do now is give thanks. What? Listen to what he says. Will not the sin be constant occasion for me to give thanks that both of us may live in the forgiving love of God in Jesus Christ? Thus the very hour of disillusionment with my brother becomes awesome. That's an Australian translation of the original German. Uh, Incomparably salutary is what Bonhoeffer says. The very hour of disillusionment with my brother or sister becomes awesome because it so thoroughly teaches me that neither of us can ever live by our own words and deeds, but only by that one word and deed which really binds us together. The forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ. Grace. It's when you bump up against people that are prickly and spiky and difficult, that's when you find out if you actually live in grace. Or we're just all nice, smiley, happy people. Bonhoeffer concludes, when the morning mists of dreams vanish. Uh, do you know what it's like uh, when you're in the morning and there's, there's a mist around and you can't see much and, and, and he's saying, when the morning mists of dreams vanish, right? The, the dream that everyone's just nice and we're all just nice together and we all just like each other and, and we like each other and everyone likes me and I like them and that's just what the church is, right? A Christian club. And Bonhoeffer says, when the morning mists of dreams vanishes because the sun rises and it burns that junk away, he says, then dawns the bright day of Christian fellowship. So let me push this a bit further and ask you the question, how do you respond to the sin of other Christians? I mean, maybe directly to you or maybe just out there. Or let me focus the question a little further. What is Christian about the way you respond to the sin of other Christians. Or have you just been secularised, parroting the comments section of the Sydney Morning Herald? You just sound like them. Now, of course, when others sin, there's grief and there's sadness And there's embarrassment and there's cringe and there's anger. Sure, yes, and. And what Bonhoeffer says is that for you to be Christian about how you respond to the sin of other Christians, and that includes ScoMo and Brian Houston and all the rest of them, and you, actually, and you, there has to be something else as well. It reminds you of something. It it, it rings a bell. It teaches you something that none of us, certainly not that person, not that hypocrite, and then, of course, your absolutely next microsecond later thought has to be, what is it? Not me either. Not me either. None of us live by our own words and deeds, but only by that one word and deed 
Jesus Christ. And if Jesus holds that person by grace and me by grace, then true fellowship can begin. The gospel, as a gospel of grace, creates a community, a community of grace. It means that you'll be able to forgive others rather than live in resentment and bitterness, precisely because God has forgiven you. The gospel of grace not only makes church by grace necessary, it's also the only thing that makes it possible. For he is our peace. Let's pray. Father in heaven, please um, write this word into our hearts. We, we live in such a graceless world, a world that is so fractured into tribes of enmity and contempt. And we pray that you would so fill our hearts with you, with your own mercy and your own kindness and your own love and your own grace to us, that we would be something different and shine for your glory. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.